Father, we need Jesus. We need him to be our light so that we won't walk in darkness. So illuminate your word to us even now by his spirit so that it's known not only in our minds but in our hearts also. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you have been following along very closely in our series through John, you would know that actually we are skipping over what would otherwise be the next passage in that series, which is John 7:53 through 8:11. And depending on what translation you're using this morning, uh, you might actually have some notes kind of at the bottom or in the side that are clarifying some things about that passage and kind of explaining why we would do that. But uh, the simple reason is that that passage, uh, those few verses, those 12 verses, are not actually found in the original earliest manuscripts of John's gospel. And so while it's an interesting story, this woman that's caught in adultery and and Jesus kind of fending uh, off the, the people that are going to stone her, it might even be a true story. We think that probably the wisest path to take with that passage is to not preach on it as though it was intended to be in the book of John uh, because we would say it probably wasn't intended to be in the book of John. And so that's the reason that we've chosen to to skip over that passage. I encourage you to read it. Uh, I encourage you to even study about that particular issue on that topic on your own. Uh, If you have any questions, you can email Dustin Crow. Again, that is Dustin Crow that you can email. Uh, He would love to answer your questions on that. But if we do actually skip over that passage then, uh, we actually start to see a little more clearly how John 8, 12 through 30, which is our passage this morning, connects to the preceding chapter or the preceding verses of chapter 7. In John 7, 37 through 39, for example, we see Jesus offer his Jewish audience living water. And it says this happened on the last day of the Feast of Booths. Now, we've already talked a little bit about what the Feast of Booths is through chapter 7. Chris has talked on that quite a bit, and so we're not going to talk a lot about that this morning. If you want to learn more about that, you can go on our website and look at previous sermons and kind of hear some, some background on that. But basically, the Feast of Booths was kind of this uh, celebration of, of, uh, of the Exodus. And, uh, and so when uh, we see this coming into, or how this relates to 7, 37 through 39, is that Jesus kind of makes this statement um, about living water, okay? And, uh, and then kind of the rest of the chapter is kind of documenting these side conversations that's happening as a result of Jesus' proposition. If you follow me, you'll have living water. And then in 8.12, it begins by saying, again, Jesus spoke to them which means that whatever is happening in John 8, 12 is actually a continuation of what's been happening in John 7, particularly John 7, 37 through 39, all of which is taking place on the last day of the Feast of Booths. And so we'll see why that's important, why that connection is important uh, a little bit uh, later in the sermon. But before we dive too deeply into our passage this morning, not, not John 7, let me just talk really quickly about the passage's structure. When I started studying these verses last week, the first thing I noticed, and maybe you noticed it even this morning as we were reading through it, the flow of conversation in John 8, 12 through 30 seems a little bit disconnected. So in verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world, which is a pretty big claim. 
And in fact, it's actually one, uh, or I'm sorry, it's the second of seven I am statements that John is going to present in his gospel. These I am statements are, are incredibly unique characteristics to the gospel of John. It's one of the biggest things that separates John's gospel from the synoptic gospels. And so you would think that this I am statement in this passage is going to be talked about constantly for the rest of the verses, right? That's, I mean, light is going to be just this huge theme throughout the whole passage, But after Jesus' statement in 8.12, the word light, or the phrase light of the world, isn't actually used again for the rest of the passage. So so no other time in chapter 8 is the theme of light specifically brought up. And the conversation that kind of follows that statement between Jesus and the Pharisees really seems to go in a completely different direction. They seem to be talking about other things, about witnesses and and judging and, and things of that nature. So the question that I asked when I was studying this passage last week, and the question that we need to ask ourselves even this morning is, what is the point of this passage? What is it that Jesus is trying to say? What is it that John is trying to say here? Because at first glance, it doesn't appear to have anything to do with Jesus being the light. That seems like it's almost kind of this random side conversation or side statement that's happening. Well, here's where I've landed, and you can disagree with me. Um, but I do have the microphone, so I feel like I have an advantage. Um, Even though the concept of Jesus being the light of the world seems to begin and end in verse 12, so it's not talked about after that, that statement in John 8, 12 is going to be the catalyst, the foundation for the conversation that spans the rest of the passage this morning. So it's going to be questioned, It's going to be challenged, it's going to be explained, defended, and even when we we read verse 30, it's going to be accepted to some degree. In other words, if we want to understand verses 13 through 30, we'll really need to understand as much as possible verse 12 and the claim that Jesus is making in it. So with that in mind, we can kind of break this passage down into three sections. That is a bold claim a genuine authority, and a clear warning. Let me say that again. A bold claim, a genuine authority, and a clear warning. So let's start with that first one, a bold claim. Why is it so significant that Jesus claims to be the light of the world? Well, I would actually say there are two reasons. So the first reason is that it tells us something about him. It tells us something about Jesus. To really understand what Jesus is saying about himself here, we need to understand the context in which he's saying it. Now, we've already mentioned in previous weeks that chapters 7 and 8 are happening uh, during the Feast of Booths. This was a celebration that was, uh, as I said before, it lasted seven days, and it really celebrated uh, the exodus and kind of God's provision for Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. But in all of this celebration, Jesus is kind of using that environment to reveal who he really is to his Jewish audience. He's positioning himself as someone who will bring eternal provision to God's people. And so, yes, God provided for Israel in the wilderness. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to provide for you not just for 40 years. My provision is going to be eternal. It's going to be even greater. What you saw in the wilderness is just a foreshadowing of what God is going to give you all through me. So, for example, in chapter 6, maybe just days before the Feast of Booths, 
Jesus says that God gave manna to Israel, bread from heaven. And then he goes on to say, but I am the bread of life. That's John 6.35. In John 7, Jesus offers his listeners living water during uh, part of this feast that would have celebrated and commemorated the moment where God provided water in the wilderness through this rock, miraculously. These aren't just random illustrations that Jesus is using. He's using his environment to kind of make himself more known. He's connecting himself to the Exodus experience, but he's saying, what I bring you is even greater than what you experienced in those days in the wilderness. From John 7, then we come to John 8, 12, which, as we said before, also happens on the last day of the feast. But more specifically, we see in verse 20 that Jesus' claim is made in the context of the treasury of the temple, which is very important. This would have been the general area where priests performed the lamp lighting ceremony of the Feast of Booths. And this ceremony was meant to uh, recall the days where God led his people using the pillar of cloud and fire during this Exodus experience. And basically, this lighting of the lamps kind of, kind of involved um, these huge, really, they weren't, they weren't poles, they were pillars, these huge pillars. I think, I want to say they were about 40 feet tall based on uh, what I was reading last week. And on top of these four pillars were these huge bowls that were filled with gallons and gallons and gallons of lamp oil. And these young priests would uh, take uh, ladders, they'd put them alongside the pillar, they'd begin to climb up uh, these, these ladders to the top where these bowls were, and historians actually say they would take old undergarments and light them on fire as torches to light these huge lamps. So these people know how to party, right? They are lighting undergarments under fire, okay? This is the situation, just historically speaking. And Historians also say that these lamps were so bright that not a courtyard in Jerusalem remained untouched by their light. So these lamps are huge. They are incredibly bright. And as the lamps burned into the night, crowds would dance and they would sing and they would celebrate until the last day of the feast when the flames would be extinguished and the celebration would come to an end. But it was on this day, in this part of the temple during the feast, where Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. So Jesus couldn't be any clearer in what he's trying to say to his audience right now. Everything these people are celebrating, everything these people are looking forward to, everything that they're commemorating about the past is being fulfilled now in Jesus he will be their guide. He will be their protector. He will be their provider. He will be their light. And it won't just be a light that's going to reach Jerusalem. It's going to be a light that reaches across the entire world. That is what Jesus is saying about himself in John 8, 12. Well, not only does this claim tell us something about Jesus, it also tells us something about ourselves. So in verse 12, Jesus not only makes a statement, he also makes a promise by saying, whoever follows me will not walk, walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now those are encouraging words from Jesus to the one who accepts them. 
But they also reveal a pretty devastating reality, particularly to the person who doesn't accept Jesus. So Jesus is implying that if you don't follow him, you won't have the light of life. I'm sure all of us at some point have kind of watched a TV show or a movie where a character is in trouble uh, and they're, you know, they're facing peril and the hero of the story kind of swoops into the scene and they say something to, to the effect of, follow me if you want to live, right? You know, in this very serious kind of dark uh, scenario, follow me if you want to live. Or maybe a more relatable situation would be when you were mouthing off to your mother as a child and she looked at you and she said, you better shut your mouth if you want to eat tonight, right? Now that never happened to me, but maybe it happened to you. And so there's, there's basically, in both of these examples, the, an, an idea that's being expressed, which is, if you listen to me, you will receive a positive outcome. But there is something else that's being implied here. There's another idea, which is, if you don't listen to me, you will receive a negative outcome. If you don't follow me, you will die. If you don't shut your mouth, you won't eat. And that's the kind of statement that Jesus is making here in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And just as true, whoever doesn't follow me will uh, remain in darkness, which leads to death. In other words, the natural state of humanity apart from Christ is darkness. Now, the idea that the world is filled with darkness, that there's something wrong with the world, is not really all that controversial of a topic. If you were here just last week, one of our elders, Bruce Hufford, came on stage and he prayed for Sri Lanka. Because on Easter Sunday, just two weeks ago, suicide bombers entered into three different churches during their Easter services, and they killed almost 300 people. Surely there is darkness in the world. Surely there is something wrong in the world. I don't know of anyone who has ever really tried to debate that idea. The controversy and the disagreement comes when you start talking about how much darkness is in the world. How great is that darkness? Even more controversial, what is the solution to that darkness? Because there's a lot of people that would say, yes, there's, there's darkness in the world, for sure. But there's also a lot of good in the world. And if we all just kind of work together and just try a little harder, we can, we can fix whatever is wrong with the world. But what does Jesus say here? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He is the light. He is the Savior. You and I, in our own power, cannot Uh, be the solution to all the world's problems. Because in this passage, Jesus is literally saying that would be like the blind leading the blind. Darkness can only be overcome by light, and Jesus is the light. So Jesus has made his claim, but now he'll have to defend it by proving that he has a genuine authority on which to make that claim in the first place. And that's really the issue that's raised in verse 13 by the Pharisees. They say, what authority does Jesus have to make this claim? That's the question that they're basically asking. They say, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. 
So what's going on here? What are, they, what are they trying to imply by that statement? Well, according to Jewish law, a person's story would not be considered validated until it had been supported or confirmed by the support of at least two other people. And in fact, Jesus has, has previously said in John 5, John 5, 31, that if he alone bears witness about himself, his testimony is not true. So how can Jesus make this claim then in verse 12, and how can we take it seriously in light of what he's previously said in John 5? Well, the simple answer that, that Jesus gives in verse 18, just a few verses later, is that he doesn't bear witness about himself by himself, because he and the Father who sent him both bear witness together. So there are your two witnesses, is basically what he's saying. Everything that Jesus says, every claim that Jesus makes, has been given to him by the Father who sent him. But Jesus is actually saying much more about his authority than just whatever the law kind of requires of him. He's saying the authority he has is actually far greater than the Jewish law and far greater than any kind of political or judicial system that that law could be applied to. He does this in a couple ways. The first way is that he points to his divinity. So look with me in verse 19. This is the Pharisees' response to Jesus, saying he has two witnesses, he and the Father. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father, because if you knew me, you would know my Father also. So on one level, Jesus is arguing that the Father testifies on his behalf, which is already a bold claim, right? That's, that's basically what he's saying here in verse 18. But now Jesus is extending that idea even further. And he's saying, and I testify on the Father's behalf. I am the one who makes the Father known. So yes, the Father testifies on my behalf, but actually I also testify on the Father's behalf. I act as the Father's witness. And if there's anything that we can learn from this verse this morning, it's that God is not someone that we just stumble upon, just kind of casually walking through life. To know God first requires that God actually make himself known to us. Because remember what verse 12 tells us about ourselves. We are all in darkness when left to our own devices. That's our natural state apart from Christ. And so the way God revealed himself in the Old Testament would have been through prophets who basically acted as messengers. They were delivering words of God to the people of God. That was their role. But no prophet in all of the Old Testament had actually made the kind of claim that Jesus is making here now in John 8. The difference is clear. Look how the prophet Isaiah, for example, begins his message to Israel. Isaiah 1-2, he says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. In other words, Isaiah's revelation about God did not originate with Isaiah. He's delivering a message on behalf of the Lord who has already spoken. That's what Isaiah is saying here. That is the authority on which he is speaking. It is a borrowed authority that's ultimately from the Lord because it's the Lord's words that he's delivering. Now compare that, compare Isaiah 1-2 with what Jesus says back in John 8-19. He says, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. 
Do you see the difference? Jesus is stating that he's not just bringing a revelation from God. He is the revelation from God. Put more plainly, Jesus is God in the flesh. And this won't be the last time Jesus links himself to the Father in this way. He's going to say in John 10.30, which we're going to talk on in a couple of years when we get to John 10. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So to know Jesus is to know God. And to know God apart from Jesus is actually to not know God at all. A helpful way to think about this would be thinking about the relationship between the sun and the moon. So the moon kind of brightens the night sky, but the moon doesn't actually give off any light itself. It doesn't produce light. All it's actually doing is reflecting the light from the sun. And so if the sun were somehow taken away, the moon would still be there. It would still be in the sky. None of us, though, would be able to see it. We would not discover it. We would not know that it's there. We would not explore it. We would not learn about it. That is the kind of relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Now, of course, this analogy breaks down at some point. But the point is, you cannot discover God without discovering Jesus. If you want to find God, you will have to find Jesus because Jesus is God and he makes the Father known to us. If you know me, you will know the Father. Well, in addition to his divinity, Jesus also points to his origin as a defense for his authority. So in verse 23, he says to the Pharisees, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now in order to really understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand this this kind of sub-theme that's happening throughout the Gospel of John. On multiple occasions, in multiple passages, Jesus kind of uses, or I'm sorry, John uses this term world or of this world or in this world to describe those who are separate from God. So when he's using this word world, there's a lot of times where he's not talking about the actual physical earth as a globe or as a planet, but he's referring to this kind of spiritual reality of us being separated from God. It's not a physical space or a geographical location. So when Jesus tells the Pharisees here that they are of this world, what he's really saying to them is that you are far from God. You are separated from God. And just imagine the irony of this moment here. You have the Pharisees who are considered religious leaders, right? They are uh, kind of the pinnacle of morality in their society. And Jesus is kind of turning the tables on them by claiming that they don't actually know God like they think they know God. The Pharisees have have approached this entire situation with Jesus up until now as kind of a way for them to express their religious authority and their social authority. But they don't realize that the one who has been given all authority in heaven and earth is standing right in front of them. That's the irony of this moment. And the irony is just going to continue through the rest of this passage. So Jesus has made his bold claim in verse 12. He's proven that his authority is genuine in verses 13 through 20. But now Jesus is going to conclude his conversation with a clear warning. 
In verse 21, Jesus says this, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. In fact, Jesus goes on in verse 24, just a few verses later, almost repeating himself word for word. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What's the theme here? You will die in your sins. It's not that fun of a theme. So in just two verses, he says that three times. He's really trying to pound that into the Pharisee's head here. And to understand kind of the irony again and significance of this statement or this warning, you don't have to go any further than the audience Jesus is saying it to. Again, you have religious people, religious leaders, all gathering for a religious celebration. They're all participating in religious ceremonies. Surely if anyone is good enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it would be these people, the one who have taken all the steps. They've done all the right things. They followed all the little laws and rules. And yet it's these very people who, who Jesus says are on their way to experiencing eternal death because they've missed something that is central to the gospel. Over half a century ago, this uh, Presbyterian minister, Donald Barnhouse, posed a question in one of his sermons. The question was, what would it look like for Satan to take control of a whole city? Here's what Barnhouse concluded. If Satan took over an entire city, the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. You see, the question we should be asking ourselves in light of Jesus' warning is a simple one, but it is absolutely an essential one. Do I believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That isn't the kind of question that we should just kind of look at when we get the chance, when we have enough time, when we get around to it. Because there's no neutral zone with Jesus. There's no room in this question for minor disagreements or clarifications. The cost is too great. The risk is too high for us not to ask ourselves this morning, right now, where we're sitting, do I believe? Coming to church when you want to isn't going to save you. Coming to church when you don't want to isn't going to save you. Being the best parent or spouse you can be isn't going to save you. Being the best you you can be isn't going to save you. Only Jesus can save you. And he has made himself available to you today. Believe in him and have the light of life. Well, if you can confidently say this morning that you do believe in Jesus, then the next question to ask ourselves is, do we desire deep in our hearts to share that belief with those around us? Just a few years ago, I was at this meeting with uh, other local pastors in the area. And one of the pastors was speaking to us about kind of trends in our society as it relates to their response on Christianity, Christ, the gospel, 
and how we can take all of that and kind of apply it to our evangelistic efforts. And he made an interesting observation in that meeting. He said, you know, in these younger generations, the more and more that, that the people are kind of growing up into our society, they are not being threatened or feeling threatened by Christianity. They're not being offended by Christianity. They're just indifferent to Christianity. They've kind of adopted this, this sort of mantra, hey, what's right for you may not be right for me. How many conversations have we been with, uh, been in with, with friends and family and loved ones, neighbors, where a phrase like, hey, Jesus might be your way, but it's just not my way, is used. And yet there's nothing open-ended here about Jesus' warning at the end of our passage. If our hope is found in anything or anyone other than Jesus, if we're looking to anything else to save us, to give us spiritual enlightenment or whatever it is we're looking for, the consequence is going to be eternal death. That is what Jesus says loud and clear. Do we approach lost people, though, with that same kind of urgency, with that same kind of transparency as Jesus does? There's not time to spare. Jesus' message is clear. Jesus is the only way. Well, as we conclude this morning, let me just offer two points of of application for us. So if Jesus truly is the light of the world, and if we believe in him, we can be sure of two things. First, because Jesus is the light of the world, when we believe in him, we will have holiness. We'll have holiness. Remember in verse 12 that Jesus not only makes a statement, he also makes a promise. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is, when we believe in Jesus, the darkness of sin that once dominated our lives is now conquered by the presence of Christ. As he enters into our lives, he reveals the sin that made us need him in the first place. Even the sin that we weren't aware of. Even the sin we didn't care about. The sin we didn't know was there. His light is a pure light. A perfect light. And anything that was not visible in the darkness will be made visible through Jesus. But the good news of the gospel is that not only does Jesus reveal our sin, he also removes it. You see, when light enters into a dark room, the, the light doesn't get added to the darkness. The light replaces the darkness that was there. Where light is present, darkness is absent. In fact, John kind of describes this process in his first epistle. 1 John 1, 5-7 through says, this is the message which, which we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now listen to this. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Holiness is the natural result of Christ in our lives. 
So let me just encourage you. Do not return to darkness. Remain in the light. Well, not only do we receive holiness through the light of Christ, second, when we believe that Jesus is the light of the world, we also have hope. We have hope. When Jesus talks about not walking in darkness, it seems most likely that he's referring to the darkness that is inside every one of us, separating us from God. And yet we also know that there's a darkness that exists outside of just ourselves, pushing its way into our lives, trying to grab our attention, trying to grab our emotions. And this darkness can take many forms. It can take the form of sickness and loss, pain. It can take the form of disease. It can take the form of financial trials. But if we have Jesus, who is the light, then we can have hope even when it seems to be the darkest of times. And it's not that suffering somehow is removed entirely from our lives, that suffering isn't experienced anymore just because we now have Jesus in our lives. The promise of Christ is not the absence of suffering, it's the presence of hope in the midst of suffering. And friends, there are people in this room this morning who, if, who if we were honest, would say, I feel like there is darkness overwhelming my life. Darkness is coming at me from every single angle. And I don't know what to do. Some of you have family members and loved ones who have been in and out of the hospital for, for who knows what reason. Maybe you don't even know. To you, I say, Jesus is light in the darkness. Some of you are struggling with feelings of loneliness that you just desire so deeply to just, just be known by someone, to just know someone. To you, I say, Jesus is light in the darkness. Some of you have been faced with infertility or loss in a pregnancy. You desire a good thing. You desire to have children. It's a great thing. And yet you have experienced so much loss. Jesus is light in the darkness. Some of you have been overcome by anxiety. You fear what you don't know. You wish you had more control. Jesus is light in the darkness. He's the light of the world. And we can have hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Because you are the light of the world. And when we believe in you, we will not walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. May we live as though that is true. May we believe that with all our hearts, that you are light in the darkness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.